John chapter 19, verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus aside with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Given how hard last week was, in terms of the content of what we were thinking about, the sadness of everything that was going on, I'm sure that you, like me, are desperate for us to get to the resurrection (laughs) And John 20, and Lord willing, we will be there next week. But before we get there, John records details in this section of God's Word that we don't find anywhere else. And it's really important that we don't skip over those details in our desire to get to the wonderful story of the hope and the fulfillment of the resurrection. And John not only gives us extra details, he even tells us why he gives us these details. In verse 35, he tells us that this testimony has been recorded so that you and I also may believe. This section, that does not appear in this level of detail in the other Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is here so that you and I would know that Jesus really died and was buried. So that as you and I repent and trust in that crucified, dead, and buried Savior who will be raised, you will know, you can know even this morning that you have hope for all eternity in the face of death. That's what we see during this two halves of this passage. In the first half, we see Jesus' body in the hands of of his enemies in verses 31 to 37. And then in verses 38 to 42, we see Jesus' body in the hands of his followers. And all we're going to do this morning is see those two sections and what it means for us. Firstly, that Jesus really died and that by believing in his death, we have life. We can't really carve up all of this section without drawing from the bits that we've just been in and looking forward to the stuff that we've just had. This is one narrative, and what we saw last week reminded us the horror that Jesus endured. 
Not only the horror of a physical crucifixion, lots of Roman criminals had to endure the suffering of that persecution, but only Jesus, only the sinless God-man was able to take upon himself our sin. Only Jesus, only the eternal and perfect God-man was able to take upon himself and satisfy the just judgment of God against our sin. And after those three hours of darkness, Jesus knew that his great work of salvation was done. That's why he cried out as we read last week when he'd received the drink. Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But some will ask, and maybe you're one of them this morning, Some will ask, but did Jesus really die? And if whoever it was, was dying on that cross, can we really be sure that it was Jesus and not somebody else? Now, they may not be your questions this morning, but they are questions of some of your friends. There's all sorts of ideas in the world in which we live about what really happened at this point in human history. Soon after John wrote this record, an idea, a a group of teaching emerged called docetism. It's hardly a word we ever hear anymore. It comes from the Greek. It means to seem or to appear. And this false teaching emerged that Jesus wasn't really human. He just seemed to have a body. Just gave the illusion of being a person. So there's no way that Jesus could actually have been physically killed because he didn't have a real body. Now, you may not know any Docetists, and that's okay. But I hope you know lots and lots of Muslims. And our Muslim friends have a high view of Jesus as a prophet, but believe that there is no possibility that Jesus was crucified upon the cross. The Quran says, they slew him not, nor crucified him, but it appeared so to them. And those who disagree concerning it are in doubt thereof. They have no knowledge of it except the pursuit of a conjecture. But certainly they slew him not. That's what our Muslim friends believe. And I was reading this week that if you go to a northern village in Japan... In the Shingo village, they believe that Jesus didn't die on the cross either. In fact, they believe that in the years between Jesus being about 12 when he was presented at the temple and about 29 when he began his formal public ministry, Jesus had actually gone to live in Japan for a number of years to study theology and then returned. And at the point that his crucifixion was announced, he fled the country. His brother, whose name was Ishukiri, apparently, volunteered to take Jesus' place upon the cross so that Jesus could escape to Japan and live as a rice farmer until he was 106. Now, in one sense, it's funny. and In one sense, it's really not. But it reminds us that it's really important for us as Christians to know what the Bible teaches about the burial and the death of Jesus Christ. Because there are many people throughout the history of our world who do not believe this to be true. 
And we need to be confident about what the Bible teaches. When Paul refers to the summary of the Christian faith in 1 Corinthians 15, he's really clear about both the death and the burial. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. We just helpfully sung an adaptation of the Apostles' Creed. And for centuries, Christians around the world have recited and confessed that statement of what it means to be a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered unto Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Jesus' death and burial matter. Not just because it's a question of historical record, and we need to be convinced that this is what actually happened, but also because of the theology of Jesus' death and burial. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, they have plunged the world under the curse of sin. And we, as human beings and forebears of theirs, as descendants of theirs, we are living with the consequences of God's faithfulness to his promise. God said to them in the garden, when you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. That is the fate of every man and woman who is born in Adam and Eve's line. And the only way for the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from that judgment is not only for him to take upon himself the judgment for our sin, which is If you read books of theology, it's sometimes what writers call the second death. It's the punishment that left to ourselves we have to bear in eternity because of our sin against God. Jesus not only had to deal with the second death, which he uniquely did before his first death, he also had to humble himself not just to the cross, but also to the grave so that he would bear the penalty of death for us. That's why this section matters. And that's why John gives us details that we really need to pay attention to. In verse 31, we're told that the clock is ticking for the Jews on on Good Friday. The Jewish leaders, they don't want any bodies left on the crosses, and especially not overnight into a Sabbath. And especially not onto a special Sabbath, which is what this one is falling on the Passover in the week of the Festival of the Unleavened Bread. So they go off to see if they can get this body removed, not because they care for Jesus. They don't care for him at all. They care for themselves, as they have done all the way through the whole of this passion narrative. We read, I think, two weeks ago, didn't we, from Deuteronomy, and we were reminded that the reason the Jewish leaders didn't just want to stone Jesus, they wanted to crucify him, was to prove that this man was cursed of God. Now, if you read those two verses in context, actually you will see that if someone is guilty of a capital offense and is put to death, their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who's hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. It's not one of those desperately sad ironies in John's gospel. What do the Jewish leaders care about? It's the Holy Land and the Passover. 
not the Holy One who's come to be the final Passover lamb. And so they asked Pilate to remove the bodies from the cross. And, and we might think that's a very normal, humane thing to do if somebody's already died. But the Roman custom was to leave the bodies on the cross. They would leave them to all of the natural world as another warning of the severity of what would happen if you did what these people did. And you can imagine how horrific that would be. But as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, Pilate is also responsible for enforcing Jewish law as best he is able. So he gives consent, provided they're dead. Sometimes crucifixion could take days to kill a person. And that's why these soldiers are sent out to deliver this final blow of brutality in verse 32. The criminals on either side of Jesus were still alive. So the soldiers crushed their legs with an iron mallet that was called a crurifragium. And the shock, the additional pain would often just kill people on impact. For those who survived, they were unable then to push up with their feet on the cross. And you can't hold your body weight for long with your arms. It was a horrific way of accelerating the death on a crucifixion. Both of the, soldier, the criminals on either side of Jesus endured all of that. But when they came to Jesus, Jesus was already dead. Remember the question that we asked, did Jesus really die? Was it really Jesus? Remember who's checking. These soldiers are professional executioners. Their livelihoods depended, in fact, their lives depended on them obeying the orders they were given. It's their job to make sure the criminals are dead. Under them, oh sorry, yeah, serving over them, under, they're serving under the responsibility of a centurion. And he's responsible for making sure that they do their job properly. He's the one who's speaking to Pilate and his job is at risk if he doesn't do his job properly. And then Pilate is this serving Roman authority who has to make sure that for all of the saga that they've been through with all of the Jewish people, if they're going to take these bodies down fast, they have to be dead. But Jesus was dead already. Not because he was weaker than the other criminals. Not because he'd suffered more than they had. Jesus was dead because Jesus had finished his work of salvation. He had endured all of the punishment from God. And what did we read last week? He cried out, it is finished because he had done all he had come to do. And he gave up his spirit. We saw last week that the giver of life was in charge of his own death. So the soldiers had no reason to break his legs. Instead, verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now John doesn't tell us whether that was out of spite, because they hated Jesus, or whether it was 
as a way to prove that he was actually dead. But either way, blood and water flowing out of Jesus' side proved that he had died. Now, medical experts have debated for years exactly what happened physiologically. And with my C in GCSE biology, I am not going to try to mediate all of that expertise. If you're medically minded, here are the two most common reasons. Either the pericardial sac was pierced around the heart, or this was hemorrhagic fluid from the chest cavity. God's word doesn't tell us, and therefore we don't need to know. What we need to know is that this proved that Jesus was dead. And that's why John records this level of detail. Verse 35, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. Now, that's somewhat unusual as a way of writing. We believe it's John describing himself. But if you wrote that way in an English exam this week, You might have people wondering whether you understood the tenses and the persons with which you write. But if you flip back up to verse 27 of chapter 19, it's basically the same way that John's already referred to himself. And if you go over to chapter 21 and verse 24, John records, This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. So I think verse 35 is describing... John himself, who has personally seen this event, and he is testifying about it. There's a little bit of discussion about whether we read in that second sentence, he knows that he tells the truth. Is the first he John himself? Or is it a reference to God? God knows that he tells the truth. We're not sure, but either way, John is being absolutely adamant that I've seen it. I'm recording it for your good. I know you're going to rely on it, and I'm telling you this so that you may believe that Jesus really died. His death wasn't an illusion. Fake bodies don't bleed. And this isn't the body of another person. How did we get to this circumstance? We got here because Judas, who'd been with Jesus for three years, identified him in the garden And from that moment, Jesus has been bound by the Roman officials. This is the Son of God, and his death has been corroborated not only by those professional executioners who weren't followers of Jesus, but also by the blood and the water that flowed from his side. Jesus really died, but I think, and I say this carefully, I think John intends us to see more in the blood and the water here. We we always need to be careful with symbolism. And clearly the focus in this section is on the historic reliability of John's testimony. This really happened and you can be sure of it. But when you read through the rest of John's gospel, the references to blood and water would suggest we're supposed to see something more here too. You go back to John 6, and Jesus told us that we can only have eternal life through his shed blood. You go back to John 4, and he told the Samaritan woman that only Jesus can give anyone living water. 
He builds on that theme in chapter 7 and says that that living water springing up within the life of every believer is the Holy Spirit bringing change and making us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by the time you get to chapter 29, Jesus' shed blood shows us that our salvation has been secured. For, there is, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And I think it's right for us to see. I think John intended for us to see that as this water flowed, it's the symbolism of new and eternal life that is made possible because of Jesus' sacrifice. I think what John wants you to know is, yes, Jesus really died. But because he really died, you can really live. And your eternal forgiveness flows from the sacrifice the Lord Jesus Christ made. That's why Fanny Crosby wanted to stay near the cross. Thinking of those women back in verse 25 who were near the cross. Crosby wrote, and I'm not going to sing, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There, a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. Do you know that healing stream? Do you know that as Jesus died, his death has brought you life? Do you know that this graphic detail, all of this description is here so that you would be absolutely certain, despite what anybody else may say, that Jesus really died so that you can really live. But it isn't only John's eyewitness testimony that we're to trust here. John shows us that even after death, Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies of Scripture. If you've got a a Bible in front of you, you'll either see a little marker in the text or you'll see some footnotes at the bottom of the page to reference three different Old Testament passages in verse 36 where John says these things happen so that the Scripture be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken at the bottom. You've got references to Exodus 12 and Numbers 9. Both of those are commands about how the Passover was to be offered. And it was a requirement of God in the Mosaic law, that the Passover lamb would not have a single broken body. The sacrifice needed to be perfect. Perhaps, though, John is thinking also of Psalm 34, where God, through David, promises to protect all the bones of the righteous man. Not one will be broken. Perhaps John had both in his mind. That here at long last is the perfect Passover lamb and not a single bone was broken. And why did the Lord protect the Lord Jesus Christ from having his legs crushed? Because he was the truly righteous man. And you get that lovely description. Unusual perhaps in the context of Zechariah 12. Hundreds of years before Jesus was crucified. But he prophesied they will look on the one they have There's more detail than we can go into there, especially when you get into chapter 13 and you realize that from there comes a flow. And there's another whole sermon there that we can't get into today. All I want you to see is that repetition of John's pattern all the way through the passion narrative of this fulfilling the word of God. God speaks, it happens. He can speak now and it is present tense for the future because it will happen. 
And what's remarkable, you get so used to this happening all the way through the Passion account, is Jesus is now dead. If anybody can ever point to the Scriptures and say, oh, well, the only reason that Jesus said, I thirst, is because he knew that there was a passage in the Old Testament that he was going to fulfill. You can't do anything when you're dead. But God is so completely in control of all of this that even after he's died, Jesus' body is fulfilling the perfect commands and plan of God. The soldiers did all of this, perhaps out of spite, but what are we seeing? As we've seen before, it's that God is in complete control. I read all these details. I don't enjoy these levels of details. I used to be really, really squeamish as a kid. I'm less so now, but I don't enjoy this. It's here so that you and I would know that even in the darkness of the death of the giver of life, God is completely in control. He really died. And believing in his death gives us life. But Jesus' body doesn't stay in the hands of his enemies. In verse 38, two of Jesus' followers take charge of his body. And John shows us, secondly, that Jesus was really buried and that his tomb gives us hope in the face of the grave. Now, Joseph and Nicodemus share something of a similar story. Joseph of Arimathea, as we read the account of all of the four Gospels, he was a prominent member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, like Nicodemus. Though, we're told that Joseph didn't support the vote to crucify Jesus. We're told that Joseph was a good and upright man, a a man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. We are told that he was a disciple of Jesus, but he was one secretly because he feared the Jews. Everything we know about Nicodemus, we know from John's gospel. And his name appears three times. You go back to John 3, and what do we see? We see a, a member of the Jewish council who really wasn't sure what to make of Jesus or any of his teaching and came with all of his doubts and questions. But things have moved on by the time you get to chapter 7. Now he's challenging the Sanhedrin, who are thinking about just throwing everything at Jesus, and Nicodemus is the one who stands up and says, we need to apply fair due process to all of this. But here... Now they show amazing courage. You see the similarity between these two men? John tells us that Joseph was secretly a follower of Jesus. And he tells us that Nicodemus was the one who came to Jesus when? At night. Both were fearful during Jesus' life. But here, they both set forward. Mark tells us that Joseph went boldly to Pilate. Here are these men who've lived the whole of their lives fearful to be known as Christians. And now, humanly speaking, at a point in time when there is nothing to gain by being associated with a dead body, both of them step into the light and courageously in front of the entire Sanhedrin and for everybody to see, ask Pilate for Jesus' body. And they bury him at considerable expense to themselves. The sunset is coming for the Jews. That's the end of the day. As the sunset dawn, sunset comes, that ushers in the Sabbath. And so there's a really narrow window for them to bury Jesus. Matthew tells us that Joseph is so wealthy that he has a tomb nearby. 
one that's been newly built. No one's ever lived in it. And John tells us that Nicodemus used 35 kilos, that's our money, of myrrh and alloy with which to intersperse in the linen as it was wrapped so carefully around Jesus' body. 35 kilos. I've got children that don't weigh that much. That's a lot. And it would have cost a fortune. In fact, it was so much. It's the kind of weight you would give to a king. And I think that's what John is focusing our eyes on as he draws his record of this Good Friday to a close. See, if you read all the four Gospels together of this specific moment, you can learn all sorts of amazing things that are going to encourage us, especially when we get into chapter 20. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're really clear that the women followed Joseph and Nicodemus to the tomb, and they saw exactly where they laid Jesus' body, which means we're ready. By the time you get to John 20, We're ready to see that they were trustworthy. We could believe their account that they'd gone back to the very place where Jesus was buried and saw that he wasn't there. There's a reason that nobody else had been buried in this tomb. Not only so that the Holy One of God wouldn't see decay, but also so that when they came back, there could be no confusion about whether it was Jesus' body or somebody else's body. There was no other body there. All of it is to build our faith and our confidence in what we're going to see in John 20. John has this wonderful emphasis on the devotion of Joseph and Nicodemus. There's this sense of, well, they weren't further on in their understanding than the disciples. It's not that Joseph and Nicodemus knew that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead, so they did all of this even though the disciples had gone. Despite all of their hesitation to be publicly known as disciples during his life, here they come with this this confession that may not be faith in the resurrection, but it's a confession of love. It's a confession of worship. They're giving all that they have. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Isaac Watts would write these wonderful words, they would have sung these words with all their heart. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. All of that is true (laughs) and good. But what I want you to see that John shows us alone is what he tells us in verse 41. Jesus was buried in a garden. John completes another one of those story arcs in the Bible. See, the first Adam was appointed to be the king of God's world and was chose to rebel in the garden and brought death and suffering. The second Adam, who is the king of kings, lived a perfect life of obedience and paid the full penalty for sin before being buried in a garden. John is bringing us back to these massively important covenantal themes of the old and the new covenant. And what does it mean for you and I personally? The key question becomes, which Adam are we in? If you're still 
in the old Adam, as Paul would use that language in his letters. If you're still in the old Adam, if you're still yet to repent for your sin and know that Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin, the Bible does tell us that you have every reason to be fearful of death and the judgment of God. But if we believe in him, which is the very reason John has given us this account, if you are in the second Adam, then his death does more than bring you life, which is an incredible thing in and of itself. There's a lovely detail that warmed my heart from, from the theologian Louis Burkhoff. Has anybody got systematic theology by Louis Burkhoff on your shelves? Wonderful. A few of you have. If others of you ever find it, buy it. It will be good for your soul. And in some of his other writings, Burkhoff has this lovely pastoral application to Jesus' death. Yes, we are supposed to believe that Jesus really died. Of course we are. It's essential to our salvation. But pastorally, there is hope in Jesus being buried. Burkhoff writes that Jesus' burial removes the terrors of the grave for the redeemed and sanctifies the grave for us. No Christian goes to an unsanctified grave for his or her Lord was there first and rendered it a fit and safe place for their body. Therefore, our grave need never be dreaded. Isn't that a precious thought? Jesus has secured your eternal life through his death and resurrection. But by being buried, our Savior has gone before us to make that a fit and safe place for your body. Many of us, sadly, have been alongside the bedside of someone who has died recently this is such precious comfort to all who die in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have nothing to fear, even in the grave, because your Savior has already been there for you and has broken through it. I pray that it would be as much comfort to you as it has been to me.